Welcome, listeners, to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a really special treat. We have with us author illustrator Samantha Winkler, or you might have seen S.J. Winkler, same person. Samantha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you. So, author illustrator, how'd you get into this? This started as one of the few ways I could entertain myself as a kid because I was super nearsighted and I was an only child. So the options for activities was a bit limited, but sitting in front of the TV, drawing, coloring, reading, those are things I could do and actually see what I was doing. (laughs) So I think that's where it started. Okay. That's the craziest unexpected origin story I've ever heard. So coloring or drawing was something that you could do. Did you not know right away you were nearsighted or was just, hey, I actually really like this drawing thing or? I had no idea. No one knew how blind I was until I was like, I want to say six years old. Wow. Second grade, whatever age that is, six or seven. My teacher noticed because <laughs> I kept walking up to the chalkboard because I couldn't see what she wanted us to copy down. And so she was the one that kind of let my parents know, like, maybe your kid needs glasses. <laughs> so the once you got the glasses, it wasn't like, okay, I want to ditch all the close-up stuff now. You stuck with it, apparently. Yeah, by then it's just like part of my life. So I just kept doing it. Kept doing it. It was a side hobby or you were like, you know what? I really want to make a life that revolves around this. I think it was just part of my life. I didn't truly consider trying to get published with books until I want to say my 20s when I was deciding what I wanted to go to college for. It wasn't until then that I realized, oh, my drawings are really good now because I've been doing it for several years and being an avid reader... I started to realize that I had read so many dang books that I was starting to catch on to how to write stories in a way that was working. So I thought, well, I guess when I go to school, I'll focus more on um, an English degree and an art studio degree and just sharpen up my skills as much as I can that way. It was just because you put two and two together. No one said, consider books. No, there wasn't really a whole lot of input with it, which is mostly because of me. I don't really ask for help and I don't really let people know what I'm thinking about. I kind of just make decisions and just follow wherever it leads. You said an art studio degree and an English degree. So did you specifically enroll in some sort of literature, children's writing or whatever sort of program or you specified art and English and you figure out ways to put it together later? Yeah, I decided specifically to double major. So I wanted to have a BA in English and also a BA in art studio because I knew that the university I could go to near me at the time, they wouldn't have anything like illustration or anything specifically geared towards entering the publishing industry. So I decided on my own to just combine two different disciplines to my benefit as much as possible. Because I was living in Southern Illinois at the time, and Southern Illinois University was, for my income, was my best bet at figuring out a way to make it work. When did the pivot kind of happen? It was once you got out of college that you're like, okay, now let's figure out how to publish industry this, or was it, actually, I like other stuff now, and then you're kind of branching out in different directions. So I didn't really go to university until my later 20s. In my early 20s, I was studying karate and just working in a bakery decorating cakes. What? <laughs> well, it's like, I keep forgetting about it. What? <laughs> 
when I graduated high school, the income situation was such that I couldn't really qualify for, say, the Pell Grant or anything for right. college because my stepdad made way too much money. They had moved to another state. I was really on my own. I just I couldn't figure out a way to make the college thing work. I don't know if it's like this all over the country, but in Illinois, there's a rule that to qualify for federal help to go to school, you need to either be 26 or married. And I knew I didn't want to get married just so I could go to school, so I decided to wait until I was 26. So I would take a few tiny classes here and there, started taking karate just to kind of pass the time, started competing, started coaching kids, and it was just something I enjoyed doing that helped me stay in shape, and I was a little bit okay at it. So yeah, it just kind of happened, and then when I got old enough to where I could go back to school, it kind of flowed naturally. And what about the cake decorating? When you started doing it, it wasn't like, oh yeah, here's where it's at, or just like, this is a cool creative outlet. Oh, it was a happy accident that I was able to work on decorating cakes. It started as just a job that a friend got for me so that I could pay my rent and cover my equipment for karate in the evenings. It was supposed to be a bakery job in like a bakery deli. There's a supermarket chain in the Midwest called Tom's Supermarket. And so I would go in at like five in the morning, get all the donuts ready, help the deli people out on their side of the counter for a while. And they had this cake decorator. She was really nice and she was really good. I haven't really seen some of the stuff that she could do with frosting to create kind of more sculptural shapes. I'm a doodler. I like to draw, but I hadn't really messed around with anything three-dimensional like that. So it was really cool to learn from her. I started substituting for her when she couldn't come to work. It's so great, but having seen some of your artwork, especially these murals, you're usually using these like bold colors and there's so much going on. And I'm trying to think of you doing light yellow and pink flowers on a cake. I'm not not seeing it because of that you can't do it. I'm just not seeing it because it's like, that is so opposite <laughs> to what I see from your art. Like, wow! Oh, I was forever getting in trouble with the cakes a little bit because if left to my own devices, they did get pretty vibrant. There weren't any complaints, but um, yeah. It was like, just make the flower, Samantha. We don't need a scene going on here. What do you mean? It should be a bird of paradise. It, it almost sounds like you got your karate thing going on, you got art going on. You almost sound like you could be writing superhero graphic novels or something. Is that something you're kind of also open to? And you're like, well, who knows where the wind's going to blow? Or you're like, no, I love kid stuff. I'm learning more about it. I think comics are a level beyond what I feel comfortable with so far. It's a lot, lot more work. I think mostly that's just a confidence thing. I've been trying. I've been practicing with the illustrators in our local SCBWI group because a lot of the guys there are good at comics and things like that. So I've been trying to absorb their knowledge. It's a pattern with me. I'll pick someone that I think I can learn a lot from and I'll just become a sponge and absorb everything I can from them. That's great. I look forward because I can see it. So I have confidence in you. Okay, let's go back to the murals for a second. You make these, I think, on the gym walls. You have them in your garage or on your car. You have these vibrant mural stuff going on. How did that start? How do you go to gym and, hey, I could paint your wall for you? What's the whole deal over there? That started in my 20s around the same time that I was doing karate and working in a bakery. It started with just the local pubs. The karate studio was on Main Street in Belleville, Illinois, and it's kind of this sweet, old-timey Main Street set up with a bunch of closed shops and pubs and there was one pub in particular that we all met at on Fridays and Saturdays to hear music. They kind of started there. The owner had seen some kind of paintings I had done for a local gallery show and they asked if I would paint a mural in their bar and yeah. then after I did that one another bar asked. It just kind of snowballed. 
But mural work, especially in the Midwest, it's not something that pays the bills. The Midwest has a pretty specific attitude towards artists, and it's not an attitude in which they believe they should be paying a lot of money for your art. I considered it more of just an opportunity to practice and to show what I could do, and an opportunity to help my friends is how I looked at it. So mural work, from your perspective, is it just basically, I have a giant canvas instead of a smaller canvas, or is it a totally different mind frame when you have to create the mural. Murals are fun because it's creative problem solving. Having to tell some kind of a story on a larger canvas, a canvas that's almost beyond your control, is a challenge. I just like the challenge of it. Like, this is a really big space. Can I do it? How do I do it? How do I get around the challenge of needing to be up high on a ladder when I'm kind of scared of ladders? <laughs> this is, to me, who's not very artistic, but I never figured out how do people size things for murals. You're used to drawing a circle on a piece of paper. You figure out the spatial thing of it. But all of a sudden you're doing it on a wall. I'm like, how do they know how big to make things? Or do you actually sketch it out like 15 times before you actually get things right? There are different ways to do it. Muralists who are really good at it and are pros get mathematical about it. So they'll draw exactly what they want to put on the wall first and they'll lay a grid over the top of their drawing and then they'll make a larger grid on the wall so Uh. that they can essentially enlarge a smaller drawing directly onto the wall with a minimal effort but with a precision. And I'm not that cool. I learned how to do it, but it wasn't fun for me. So I disregarded it. And that's generally how I handle everything in my life. (laughs) If I'm not actively engaged with it, I disregard what I'm told to do and try something different. So I prefer to freehand draw onto the wall with colored pencil first, a light colored pencil. Then I ink the lines of what I want to paint on the wall. And then I pretend it's a giant coloring book and I just fill it in. Well, that's a good lesson in finding your own process. (laughs) Well, we're coming to do a mural. Is it usually you must paint this or do something with this space that fits the place we're in? If someone hires me, the more notes I have from them, the better on what they want. There's a community center up here where I live in Victorville. It's called High Desert Boxing. The coach who runs that place, there's a local kid named Ryan Garcia who has gone on to be pretty well known in boxing communities. I forget what his weight class is. I think he's like a lightweight or a featherweight maybe. But they wanted a big mural of him in the community center because this is a small town and it's kind of a big deal that a local kid was able to be disciplined and get somewhere with it. And so they had the general idea of what they wanted. They knew they wanted Ryan's face. They wanted it to be a picture of him when he was a kid next to a picture of him as an adult champion. But aside from that, they left it up to me as far as how I was going to show that. Is it kind of intimidating to have to create a likeness of someone versus just being able to make your own version of a person who doesn't really exist? (laughs) Yes. And I don't know if this is partly because of the nearsighted thing. I don't see faces the way they actually look. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but like if I see a picture of my face, I look different almost every time. Like I'm always surprised by (laughs) what I look like. And it's kind of the same. If I try to draw somebody in like an art class, I'll draw exactly what I I'm seeing, but to the people around me, the answer has always been, oh, that's not what they look like, Sam. (laughs) So I don't really know, so I was really scared, but I must have gotten better at it, because by the time I was done with that assignment, it, it does look like him, and it is a very large portrait. I think it's like 10 feet tall, 6 feet wide. It's really big. Yeah, I think I saw it. Was it kind of blue? It had like dark blue, or part of it was in blue? 
Am I mixing it yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah, there's like multiple bright colors. Yes, because I've seen pictures of that. I've seen other pictures of you done, and each time it's just like, how do people mural? So you're doing your cake decorating, you're doing your karate, then you go to college, etc. Coming out of college, how did you get from there to actually, you have books out that you've illustrated. What happened on that part of the journey? So when I was finally able to start pursuing my English degree, one of my creative writing professors, her name was Nancy, and she was a member of the SCBWI. And so I had asked her once after class, like, hey, I've been working really hard on this book I'm writing. I think it's a children's book. What do I do? Because the university was very much all about fine art and literary fiction. They weren't really interested in helping someone pursue commercial illustration or commercial books, but she invited me to the local SCBWI meeting for that area, and that's how I got introduced to the SCBWI. By the time I graduated college, I had been a member of SCBWI for three or four years, and I stuck with them. And that's how we know each other. Yay! Currently, you have an agent. I don't. That's one of the things I haven't... My journey is so strange. I'm kind of doing it backwards. I haven't said yes to an agent yet. So the books that you've illustrated, how did that hookup happen? I know, it's weird, right? It's like not fair. No, hey! It's good for people to know that there's other ways. You know, who knows? Yeah, there are insane ways this can happen for you if you don't have an agent or if you're not sure you want one. The way it happened for me... An agent who does not represent me recommended me to illustrate a picture book. Oh my goodness. And what it was is that this agent used to be a member of my local SCBWI group. She was a writer in my local group. She would come to our meetings every month. Apparently at some point during her journey, she decided to pursue becoming an agent rather than seeking an agent. When she achieved that, the issue of this book needing an illustrator came up and she remembered me. Wow. Did she still have to kind of facilitate the deal because of that? Or was it just like, hey, contact her, figure it out, people? What happened was the editor of Sky Pony Press, Nicole Frail, wonderful. I really, really loved working with her. She emailed me directly saying, hey, so-and-so recommended you as an illustrator for this picture book. I looked at your Instagram. If you'd be interested, could you sketch out a couple pages of what it would look like if you illustrated this book so that I can see how it would look if we have you do this? So I read it and provided a couple sketches and she came back over the weekend with an offer. It was not like a huge offer or anything for an advance. It was decent. That's how it happened. It's so strange. I've never heard of that happening that way. Yeah, no. I've been speaking to a lot of people in the last couple of years and nope. So just to also just put it out there, what's the name of the book? What's it about? This book is called Every Other Christmas and it's a story about a boy of divorced parents and he switches up his Christmas celebrations. So one year he'll spend Christmas with his mom's family in Chicago and the following year he goes with his dad to visit his dad's family in Colombia. It's really cool because you get to see... The different Christmas traditions, but you also get to see an example of positive co-parenting. The kids' parents aren't together, but everyone is still very healthy and happy and finding ways to celebrate the holiday, which was my favorite part about it. Did the author provide extra details about certain things in Colombia are like, or is that kind of evident within the book itself? Did you have to do extra research on that? 
We both did. So the author went to Colombia and she studies Spanish. She's very immersed in that culture. And so she was a big help because there are parts of the book where they talk about the foods they eat for Christmas. And a lot of the Colombian Christmas foods I had never heard of. And so I was really nervous because I wanted to make sure I was being authentic and accurate. I did do a lot of research to try to make sure I knew exactly what those foods were. But we even added a glossary to the back of the book because I figured if I needed the glossary, maybe other people would like it too and would want to try these different foods. Did you make any of them or find someone who makes these foods so that you could have a real authentic (laughs) research experience? The tamales. The tamales I learned how to make because I got so tired of drawing them but not being able to taste them (laughs) that I had to. (laughs) Oh, and that just came out a couple months ago? What did you... September 20th. How long did you have to work on the illustrations for that? They gave me about a year for the illustrations. That includes you making the sketches, coming back to them, getting feedback, going back and forth, and then basically the entire process of it. Yeah, so I would sketch out everything I could. I would make a little PDF. I call it a process diary. And I would send it to them and they would give me their thoughts. I mostly only spoke with Nicole Frail. And then she would show it to the author. And then she would deliver author notes back to me. So it still felt like a nice collaboration and I felt supported. That's good. As an author illustrator, and now you're working with an author that's not you, and you're realizing like, oh, when she does things like this or like that, I either liked what she did here, I should start doing that also, or I think I do that also and that doesn't really make sense. Was there some sort of takeaway experience like that or was just whatever, I just made illustrations for her? It's interesting to think about it that way. The author does have a very different way of telling a story than I do. But for some reason, my illustration style really matched that. So the author is writing a pretty simple picture book story. It's not like she's giving a ton of detail and like her illustration notes are not anything real specific. She knew she wanted the kid to have a big family. And I did use some of the author's relatives as models to kind of help with the authenticity and stuff like that but I think the creative problem solving that comes from finding the right image to enhance the author's words is really fun. I've had people like fellow writers ask me because I have three other picture book contracts um, they're also illustration contracts and I've had people in my critique groups ask me if don't you wish you were working on your own books your own stories and and for me it's anything I work on it's me that's getting it's really rewarding finding a way to illustrate someone's words in a way that pleases them is just really exciting for me you kind of dropped there that you got three more contracts so how'd you get the three other contracts same press same editors totally different the author of every other Christmas during 2020 she made a decision to start an independent press this author Katie Odie she's from a diverse background and she's another person that I spent some time with in the SCBWI and just in getting to know her and how she felt about diversity in publishing and just some basic parts of it that she felt the industry was kind of missing the mark on it was really important for her to start a press where she could help authors tell their 
stories authentically in a way that's not being pressured by media. And so when she decided to do that in 2020, which is when I was illustrating Every Other Christmas, the first three picture book contracts she took on from other authors, she brought to me and asked me what I thought about them, and we kind of worked out a deal from there. I'm pretty excited for her because she just had Every Other Christmas come out by Sky Pony Press, and now next year, her publishing company, Phoenix Books, will produce its first three picture books. Oh, wow. Do you have a sense that you have to make sure that each style looks completely different or you've seen what my style is and I'll just adapt it to each of these stories kind of thing? Well, that's one of the things that illustrators and art directors kind of debate each other on. It's changing a little bit now, but for most of the time that I've been a member of SCDWI, the pressure you receive as an illustrator is that, oh, you're supposed to develop one specific style. Don't deviate from it. Make sure everything you do looks exactly the same as everything else you do. Or if you're going to have multiple styles, you almost need like a whole separate portfolio for each style to be taken seriously, which is fair. I mean, it's a lot of work, but I'm a rascal. I kind of don't care about branding enough to put that much weight on how I'm selling myself. For me, all I care about is the needs of the story. I have been trying to make sure that it's obvious that each of these picture books I'm working on are clearly done by me, but the styles are a little bit different. Every Other Christmas has a lot more sensories, like explosions of color, because Christmas is a very sense-heavy time. Everything tastes stronger, colors are brighter, because there's ribbons and lights everywhere. With the different cultures in that book, I was looking at painters who are not me. So for the Colombian parts of the stories, I was looking at painters like Diego Rivera and the way he uses brush strokes, which is a little different from, say, traditional holiday painters that would have fit the Illinois, Chicago area. Whereas these other picture books, they each have their own things that they need. So they look a little bit different. What you're saying about the portfolios and the artistic styles, it sounds the same as what they do to authors, where they kind of typecast you, right? Actors get that. We're like, you're known now as the author who writes X. Don't move out of your genre. Don't move out of your age group. We want you to just keep writing in this particular style or this particular way. Some authors are happy to just stay in the universe. This is a rom-com author and we'll just write all the rom-coms or whatever it is. And then there's other authors that also, I don't want to be only one type. I want to write whatever the story that's coming to me is. It doesn't matter if it's a different age group or genre or anything like that. It sounds like it's just this general idea that gets applied to each specific group. It's kind of a natural thing that happens. I mean, like, actors talk about it all the time, getting typecast, and some are really proactive about fighting against that and being rascals and insisting, you know? But I don't know. I just kind of don't care enough. If I cared about the business side of things more, I would probably put myself out there a little bit differently, but I'm a little bit too much of an absurdist about how I run my life. I care more about the reader than I do about where I stand in the publishing industry. It's really not my business what the publishing industry wants to do and how they want to handle me. If I keep getting picture book contracts, I'll keep trying my hardest to make them the best I can make them. But if it switches to where I need to work on middle grade spot illustrations or book cover designs or something different, I'm going to do that and I'm not going to really worry too much about how it would affect my portfolio. I think part of 
my rascally attitude about this comes from being a freelancer for so long. I've just kind of been doing it for so long that I can be a little bit insolent and contrarian. <laughs> I've just seen it happen too many times. The industry will say, it can only happen this one way. And I'm like, well, I got evidence to the contrary. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess this is part of where the business aspect of stuff and the art aspect of stuff kind of clash a little bit because it's like you've built up a fan base according to this kind of writing where it's like that's fine I want to serve my fan base but at the same time if I'm not feeling the story or the art I'm going to go according to what I'm feeling right now and maybe some people come along because they're just interested in anything I do and some people if they're only coming along for the particular genre or style then they'll have those things to make them happy kind of thing like, I mean there's a lot of power in that I've done it before used focused audiences mm -hmm. to produce a book let's see so a few years ago I was listening to a podcast all the time called The Last Podcast on the Left it's not a good podcast for kids so if moms or librarians are listening, like, don't recommend it for your kids. But it was a group that I liked to listen to quite a bit. And they had a Facebook page where all their fans would chat with each other about the show. And it was people from all over the world. I don't know. There had to have been, like, 17K followers. Yeah. A lot of followers. My personal Facebook page had maybe 300 friends on it. But anything I posted in this group was being seen by 17,000 people. Just in thinking about that, I thought, well, what's a project I could use for practice for publishing using this group as a focused audience? And so I thought, well, a lot of them post fan art that they really want the guys who do this podcast to see. What if we do a fan art coloring book anthology where I could organize the images and the artist submissions into this big fan art coloring book? The fans could buy it. Any of the money made from it could go to help fund the podcast because at the time this podcast was not sponsored. It was just three broke guys in New York struggling to make their dream come true. So we did it and published it just through, I think at the time it would have been Create Space. Got the guys who run the podcast to sign off on it so that all the royalties would go straight to them for the book sales. And it did great. It was wow. on Amazon's bestseller list for like months. Oh wow. Because of this one big Facebook group. So it is really smart to take an audience into account, a fan base into account, like especially once you have a fan base i'm completely for nurturing it right. you know and all that stuff but just for my own illustrating and my own books so far my journey has been so strange that i'm hesitant to put it into any kind of a box because i don't know what's going to happen next yeah and i'm a little worried if i try to control the how too much it's going to mess it up so i'm trying to just get better at going with the flow and adjusting which i guess is probably also a freelance thing because when the project comes up you figure out how to fit it if it's something you want to do you're just like i'll make it work i'll figure it out <laughs> wow that's crazy so you, you gotta get these three picture books you also have like what one year to get all three of them done or it's gonna be longer you've had more time for some of them one of them is literally just waiting on the back cover and the dust jacket design and it's ready so that'll be the first one to come out next year it's a book called sister it's an adoption story about a family as they go through the process of taking on foster kids before they decide to adopt that was a really sweet story i loved working on that one i get mad at the author still because she made me cry like four <laughs> times her story is so heartfelt <laughs> that's great sorry the illustrations are a little bit splotchy but here you go yeah i was getting mad because I'm not a sappy kind of 
person, you recommend a book to me and you say, oh, it made me cry. You'll love it so much. Chances are really good. I won't read it. Because <laughs> I'm like, what? I don't want to cry. The story is just so dang sweet. Like, you can't help it. That's exciting. A technical question, though. What tools are you using to illustrate it? Is it digital? Is it non-digital and then transferred over to digital? Or what do you draw with? It's both. So I prefer to draw traditional pencil and paper, ink and paper, because that's what's the most fun for me. It's not the most practical. There's a lot of pressure on illustrators to do everything digital from start to finish because it's efficient. You can do things a lot quicker if you're doing it all digital. It's more productive and quick. But for me, that's not as much fun. If I'm being honest, I guess I care more about whether or not I'm having fun than anything else. I start with what makes it feel fun for me, and then I upload it into the computer to get the page layouts measured accurately, and the finished art is digital. So kind of like a fill-in touch-up thing will be done digitally? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's funny how we all grew up coloring with markers and crayons and pencils and we just thought that's how you color. And now it's like, no, that's traditional art. Traditional style (laughs) of doing stuff. I didn't know we were setting things up like that. Okay. Publishers don't really mind either way. A publisher just wants it to look really good. A few years ago, Laurent Lynn, a big art director, was doing a talk at one of SCBWI's summer conferences. And he had this whole session where he would show us slides. And we were supposed to guess if the slide was digital art or traditional art. And nine times out of ten, we guessed wrong because you really can't tell. If it's done well, you can't tell. And to his point was, like, it doesn't matter. If you're an oil painter, do your oil painting paintings, it's fine. It's totally okay. No one's going to disqualify you. But so where's the pressure coming from? You said there's a lot of pressure to do it all digitally. So a lot of the pressure I'm talking about is the kind of thing that illustrators put on each other. Okay. In their critique groups. It's well-intentioned. It's just kind of like a natural side effect. In the same way that writers, there will be certain writing advice in the industry that writers tend to tell each other yeah. about <laughs> stuff. And if you really think about it, it's not actually a thing, but it just <laughs> comes from constantly trying to help each other improve. Yeah, or like a singular person personal experience then become a writing advice thing and it's like it happened to you and that was your singular personal experience but unless you know that that happens to every single person you've ever met then it's not specifically writing advice it's just like oh you know what happened to me one time it's different yeah i do feel like people get them mixed up rightfully so it's very easy to see how it would happen but i mean i think it's important to just be as flexible as you can while maintaining your sanity while you work on your stuff it's definitely a balance for sure but i mean i know people that are very set on the standard industry advice of if you want to be published traditionally, you're going to need to get an agent to say yes to you first. And that's your only way to get published traditionally. And that's not true, but it's standard advice. And so like a lot of people get really rigid about trying to make it happen that specific way. It also closes you off to other options. Like you're working with Sky Pony Press, that's a traditional publisher. It might not be one of the big five. It's still a traditional publisher. So mm-hmm. if you're only stuck on if I'm not published by Harper Collins or Simon and Schuster, then I'm not published. It's like, well, then you just boxed yourself, basically. Yeah, it's one of those natural things. I've done it before too, especially within the first few years of being in the SCBWI because I was still learning. There was a lot of stuff that I took really serious, just small advice things that a lot of people get told as writers and then later on when you're feeling a lot more confident you can kind of figure out oh I don't have to listen to all the advice out there it's optional like this worked really well for one person so I have to do it too and it's like no it worked really well for this one person it may or may not work for you who knows you don't have to tie yourself to it because you're not 
that specific person. Learning to be okay with letting it happen however it's going to happen is an advantage. It's a little scary, like freelance work. Yeah. That's the magnet point. That's something that you put up on wooden signs and you put on a magnet on your fridge and you always look at it to remind yourself. Things will be fine. Embrace it. It'll be okay. It'll be fine. Just let it be weird. Just let it get weird. And that's how we have Samantha's murals. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you said you were a doodler because seeing some of your murals, it's like it totally does look like that. It looks like it wasn't specifically planned out, but what came to your hand came out of your hand kind of thing, which is that doodler style versus something that was more mathematical about things. Oh yeah. My garage mural still has blank spots because I haven't decided what to doodle there yet it was the same with my car how did you got like car paint to doodle on your car with so i did it in a way that you're not supposed to no. but it still turned <laughs> out really good so like everything else in my life i'm not sorry and i don't feel bad <laughs> so i sanded down the part of the car that i knew i wanted to try this on what do they call it? Wet sand? See, I don't even know all the proper names <laughs> for the tools I use. That's how, like, silly I am. So I sanded down the top coat. I got Rust-Oleum primer, just like that gray primer spray paint. Sprayed the primer on it and took a pencil and drew what I wanted to paint. And then I just used acrylics to do exactly how I would a mural, except I just tried to keep my coats a lot thinner than I would on a mural. Treated it like a coloring book. And then I bought uh, cans of automotive clear coat from like a AutoZone store to seal it up. It sounds like for you, the answer is always treat it like a coloring book and then your art comes out. Yeah, because for me, it's like, that's how I have to think of it to make it something that I'm not scared to do. Ah. I'm scared to do a coloring book. But if I was to think of it like, I'm painting a vehicle, a custom vehicle, like that's a lot scarier to think about. That's true. Especially when I tried it on my car, because there's a lot of people who absolutely know what they're talking about, who would have thought that that was an insane thing to do. Because <laughs> uh, it's never good gonna work right you're not using an airbrush you're not really controlling your garage setting i mean i taped it off and i kept dust out of my garage as much as possible but i live in the desert i don't know if i had listened to more sensible minds i probably wouldn't have even tried it what kind of comments have you gotten on the car do you get comments on it people are just like what um, have you done sometimes i do and they're usually pretty positive most people think it's a vinyl wrap Huh. Because the final texture of it does resemble vinyl. It's really interesting. Like, it's glossy, and it's adhered to the car really well, and there hasn't been any fading over the past year. It does look like I had a vinyl wrap put on it, which I'm still fine with. Like, yeah, that's not the point. The point is that you designed your car. The point is <laughs> I wanted my 2009 point A to point B car to look like a 90s Hot Wheels. <laughs> Do you remember those little toy Hot Wheels cars? Like, yeah. I didn't care about the cool sports car ones. I always liked it like if there was like a Jeep, but it had a crazy paint job, Hot Wheels paint job on it. <laughs> so I just wanted a life-size version of that. From what we've learned of you so far, it's like, oh, of course you did. That's totally good. <laughs> Has anyone been like, you do that for my car? Or like, where did you order from? Is that what you kind of get? <laughs> Sometimes I get asked stuff like that, but I don't think people are serious when they're asking me, nor should they be serious because, I mean, I don't necessarily know. I had never tried anything like that before, and I didn't know if it was something that would fade at the time. Now I know it doesn't. As long as the acrylic has enough pigment, the color stays bright. 
You discovered something. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a discovery. What happens if? Yeah. You know, that's my favorite question. Well, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? Well, that's also a very good storytelling tool. So just saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, once you're going to be done with your picture books that you're working on now, who knows what we're going to get next from you. That's going to be exciting. There's no telling. I've got creative writing workbooks I've been making. I've got middle grade stories I've been writing. I'm a rascal. Yeah, keep an eye on me. I'm trying to keep it all kid-friendly stuff to at least fit into certain age groups. Aside from that, I mean, it could be anything. There's one feature, there's one parameter to the uh, overall portfolio. That's Samantha Winkler. <laughs> it's the easiest one. Yeah. Essentially just a child. So it feels like, reasonable. Yeah, I can figure this out. Very good. Well, just to wrap up with our fill-in-the-blank question that we always use of I really like it when, and then using any of the storytelling stuff or whatever you come up with, I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, agents, books, stories, illustrations, covers, librarians, bookstores, whichever one you want to choose or that I haven't thought of that you could use. I really like it when and choosing any one of them, I really don't like when. How would you fill in the blank for those questions? I really like it when publishers are open to collaboration and creative problem solving. Like that they're open to doing not just specifically what they had in mind? Yeah, that kind of, yeah like okay. every other Christmas. I remember seeing that story before it got picked up by the publisher. And I remember the kind of feedback it would get. People wanted it to fit a box that already existed. But the publisher, through talking with me and talking with the author, the publisher was like, oh, we could do a food glossary at the back. We could do these small changes to make it more authentic and real for the reader. It was just nice that they had a specific idea of what they thought it should be, but they were open to just letting it blossom the way it was meant to. But yeah, that's a good example. What would you say for the opposite of I really don't like when? I don't like it when the advice in the publishing industry gets too rigid and not flexible. Yes. I understand why it happens, but I'm not a fan of it. I'm constantly being annoying to my local groups about it. Like <laughs> well, any statement that starts with saying stuff like, you have to do it this way, or you'll never get published if you don't do it this way. I'm like, hey, get out of here with that. That's silly goose stuff. <laughs> silly, silly. No, 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 no. It's also like, isn't that counterproductive to creativity by saying there's only one way to do it? The whole point of creativity is how else can it be done? I think pessimism kills innovation. Or safetyism. You know? Being like, this is a safe way because it's always been done like this. Yeah. yeah, and it's tempting. There's a lot of people that worked normal 9 to 5 jobs or normal school tracks or like it's really clear, like this is what you need to do to do this. And it's comforting, soothing instructions that are very clear on how to move from point A to point B. But as a freelancer, if I think that way, I'm going to be on the street. So I rail against that kind of stuff i don't think it's healthy right so there we go everyone feel free to try something just don't be too crazy about it maybe be crazy about it who knows i'm really gonna do say no yeah no. that's true see what you can figure out for yourself that's <laughs> how you're gonna find stuff out kind of thing very good samantha it's been a pleasure speaking with you it's been a lot of fun thank you so much thank you for having me this was a bonus episode of oh my word podcast featuring author illustrator samantha j winkler to find out more about samantha and her work please visit the link in the episode notes Find out more about Oh My Word Podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to. Please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word Podcast or check us out at elptenabout.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.